Welcome to Direction Correct, a people's podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Rob Cross. Thanks to our sponsors, Worklytics. Generate actionable insights from work data while protecting your privacy using workplace analytics with our partners, Worklytics. Uh, understanding the, the change in patent filings over this like 20 year period, essentially finding demographic characteristics. So we're seeing more like Asian Indian inventors. They're seeing more clustered inventors. So like they, they tend to be yeah. clustered in these large organizations. They tend to stay longer in those organizations. However, the more disruptive innovations tend to be coming from smaller firms. And so mm. there's like this disparity here. Yeah. Well, I, I think that there's, you see that play out you know, last week. I think we talked about workforce planning a little bit. I think you see that in the workforce planning space where, mm-hmm. you know, companies are creating more incentives for like their top talent employees to keep them around. Right. But if they ever need to do really disruptive innovation, rather than build it in house, usually they go acquire it. Right. So they go out and they buy a smaller firm who's doing really disruptive stuff and aqua hire all of that talent in house. The larger firms are also producing fewer patents. And the question is like, are they hoarding that information? Are they just making bigger bets in the future or what's going on? When that gets into a whole other discussion of like, is a patent really worth it? I think that's going on like with technology and the speed of technology is like, how much of a moat does a patent really give you in today's society? Like with the small changes that you can make, but. I don't know, Rob, do you have any thoughts about any of this stuff? I hear over and over again, the patents are not all that useful (laughs) from people for a whole bunch of reasons, but that's been 10 years ago. It started, it seems like is, is the, just the pragmatics of it. Everybody does it, you know, because it's some form of protection, but, but not, not a huge amount. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we we have the network analysis godfather himself here, Rob Cross. He's got 20 (laughs) years experience studying networks of effective organizations and those of top performers. So you've worked with, what, 300 organizations? I don't know that I've ever been called a godfather of anything. <laughs> Loads of other folks. He's a professor at Babson, founder and director of Com- Connected Commons, ONA consortium group that I absolutely love. Great resource. You've pinned 50 plus articles. You got a new book, Micro Stress Effect. Can't wait to actually get to that. But uh, how's it going, Rob? Oh, going? Very good. Very good. Thank you guys so much for, for having me here. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, Rob, if, if you're the godfather, does that make Scott your godson? Or how does <laughs> yeah. this work? Like, I, <laughs> That's like, a what, little what disturbing. Am I, am, am, yeah. am I just an, a stranger to the, yeah. the god family or something? Yeah. I don't know. It's- it's funny. So I would, obviously, there are people that I immediately think of, you know, that have a huge influence on me. So I'm thinking of them as godfathers, and they probably, you know, smack me. <laughs> but I, I like harking back to Ron Burke, Mark Granovetter, a mentor of mine, Steve Borgatti. There's a ton of a ton of people that have had a huge impact on this field. I've kind of dragged it into organizations, maybe a little bit more than most. But, but it's a lot of people, a lot of people doing interesting stuff. Who, who, who do you go to for different sources of information? Like you mentioned Borgatti and Bert. Did you get different sources of information from these different folks? I definitely get like theoretical inspiration from a whole range of academics. I'm, I'm really reticent, to be honest, to mention 
one or two names because you know, right. know I'll irritate somebody. <laughs> right. Uh, but but Ron Bird is somebody I could say, you know, especially earlier on, maybe not for the last couple of years, because my research has moved more into interview bases, but I was a wonderful mentor to me in different ways. And same I could say with David Crackhart. Uh, and others. I was just on the phone yesterday with Bob Sutton in a different light, not necessarily a network analyst, but just people that have helped me think about, you know, ways of framing the ideas. And then there are others that are more in the methods behind it, you know, and, and ways of kind of thinking about how do we apply the analytics to, to own it. And so certainly Steve has been a great mentor for me for some time in a whole bunch of different ways. One of the biggest challenges we found is all the analytics that are built for scholarly purposes are not often very helpful for corporate purposes, you know, and we've had to really rethink over 23, 24 years, what are the right ways of putting this information in front of people? I've been on three debriefs this morning, you know, and, and it's, it's increasingly, increasingly simplified today, mm -hmm. you know what I mean, in terms of the visual portrayals and everything else. Whereas the scientific aspect of ONA is, of course, going the other direction, right? It's increasingly complexified <laughs> in terms of the nuance of the mathematics and, and everything else. And so it's a it's an interesting space to, to play in. It's really interesting to hear you talk about it in those terms, because I, I look up to your work and like I, I see you as like a great resource to convey network analysis to a business, this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Ronald Byrd is, of course, doing like great theoretical work on like network oscillation and attachment decay, bridging effects, this sort of thing. I look up to Sandy Pentland, which is in your neck of the woods mm -hmm. over in Boston. Mm -hmm. Another one. Uh, yeah. Matthew Jackson's like more like graph theory, but, you know, great theoretical stuff that you're talking about. And then, of course, you get a variety of, of uh, Cajun folks as well as innovation, Michael Arena being one of them, of course. But it's fantastic to hear that like, you get inspired by different folks in different ways as well. Yeah. And I would say a huge piece of that. Like if I did one thing, it was just having the courage to go into all these companies and say, what do you think about this? You know, and not think I had to come in with some proof of gravity <laughs> or whatever, but actually right. engage in the conversation around where could these ideas be helpful. And that was really the, the basis of the consortia. And it's had an impact both, you know, in terms of what and how we look at networks what we pick out is important in these debriefs so that companies can take action, as well as what are the applications, right? What are the things that this can help companies solve? So, you know, when, when I talk about kind of key people on that side of my life, you know, the academic side, that's one piece. But for me, the real inspiration it heavily comes from all these interactions with the companies, you know, and historically, it's really interesting. You mentioned Michael Arena. I'm obviously working very closely with him now, but there used to be 40 people like that you know, that were very kind of thoughtful executives in the consortium that's down to about two. Really? <laughs> I don't mean other people aren't thoughtful, but I mean that the pace of work has pushed that category of person more and more to the side. They don't have the space to experiment as much. And so it's kind of been interesting to, to see that as well have an impact on applied research in different ways. Well, that, that's a really interesting thought, Rob. I'm, I'm curious to dig into it for a second if you're okay with it. And this doesn't have to just be a network analysis phenomenon, but it's something that I, I feel like I've observed, but I haven't really seen much data on it, is it seems like like leaders in, in companies, especially in the HR space, are being pushed more and more to you know show their value or being challenged in times mm -hmm. like they are right now. Do you think that's kind of taking the visionary executive out of the out of the fold somewhat? And is that a like kind of a meta trend that's going on in society right now? 
I think, and you know, and you hate to say that because it sounds pejorative, you know, in, in some ways, but what, what I can say, because I think there's also some positives, right, about the velocity of information, the way interconnections are happening across different areas today that's different, that creates different kinds of insights. What, what I can say is, is definitely different. If I look at this, you know, I've run this consortium for 23, 24 years now, and it's taken all sorts of different forms. But I can say, number one, there's far less experimentation with the ideas, you know, and, and the ability to kind of go in and say, you know, why don't we try this in an area and see if we can prove impact, right? That used to be a ton of what we would do 10 years ago. And that has just dissipated in different ways. People just don't have the space or time for it. And then there's far less space for thought. And I mean that, and I don't mean, again, that people aren't thoughtful. <laughs> I mean that they're jammed up with 200 emails, you know, each day and, and 50 texts from colleagues and another 200 from their children. You know what I mean? And it's just this whole swirl that they're in. And so what that's meant is that the ideas themselves have been ha had to be reduced, you know, in different ways down to a deck we just did was one of the, you know, to be really honest, it was down to bullet points and things I was so used to saying, I was very excited about some of the ways we were looking at culture very differently in this organization. And it was just too much, you know, for, for what people had the space for. <laughs> And would you say that perhaps it's the effects of micro stressors that's making this <laughs> Are you happen? trying to team me up? Yeah. I'm, I'm trying. I'm you doing my best. see the smile on his face. Yeah. yeah. Is this where I say well played? Yeah. How did this come up? How did this come up? I, I've read your HBR article. Great. We'll link to it in the notes. But you, you, you well, yeah, say, say what the name of your, your book is yeah. in, in the HBR mm -hmm. article. Just I want to give you a chance to promote it. Sure, sure. Thank you for that. So it's the this book is it's coming out April 18th. It's called The Micro Stress Effect. And it's a, a, a published with Harvard Business Review Press. We also have put out an app on the App Store called the Micro Stress Effect app. And that's a pretty cool way. And it goes back a little bit to what I was just saying about having to really find very different ways to get content into these organizations. It's not enough to have the insight anymore and write about it in a white paper that very few people read. You've got to be able to find it and, and embed it into digitized resources or other things like that. And so I'd urge people to take a look at that. You know, it's free. We make it available for everybody as a way to, to kind of scale the ideas in, in different ways. Um, so, yeah, but I can tell you a little bit about it. You, you guys guide me on, on what's helpful here. Okay. So I, I wrote a book about two years ago that was a product of quite a, quite a number of years work looking at, at high performers. And very specifically, if we map these network analytics and then get separate performance data from organizations, what we were focused on is what are the top quartile performers doing, right? How are they collaborating in ways that's enabling them to scale? And, and the key insight there we learned was it, it typically wasn't the size of their network that mattered. They were first often defined by the efficiency of their network, and they tend to be about a, a day a week more efficient than their peers. And so that book really led me into hundreds and hundreds of interviews of these people that were exemplars, right? That, that really kind of were able to buy back about a day a week and understand what they were doing. As I did that, and as I was also getting pushed by the consortia, you know, they were coming back to me saying, gosh, Rob, we love your work on high performers, but we'd also like you to broaden your definition of success and think about what are the ways that connections in our lives affect our, our well-being, right? The people that are thriving or sustainable or things like that. So it's kind of funny in retrospect, because this happened at, a, at one of the meetings, one of our last face-to-face -face meetings, not the last before COVID, but one of the last. And I remember sitting there going, nobody cares about well-being. 
<laughs> you know, at that point in time, it was all innovation, right? It was all, yeah. you know, bridging ties and things like that. And of course, we had tracks going on that, but but I, I followed it and ended up running analytics. And then I ended up doing 600 interviews for this book, 300 different swaths. And I'm so lucky you know, that I got pushed in that domain because it's brought these ideas to fruition, right? As a point where burnout is at an all-time high, you know, people are struggling in a bunch of ways that these ideas can address. And so what we, you know, what I, what I learned in that as I was going through the interviews, we were very focused on what are the positive ways connections impact our well-being. And yet what I discovered is that a form of stress was killing people, but it wasn't the conventional idea of stress. It wasn't the big things like, you know, toxic boss or demanding client. It was the accumulation of the small each day that was coming at us through connections in our lives because of how hyper-connected we are. So, you know, you think you're on a call, right? And you sense misalignment with a colleague and you know you've got to sort that out somehow and wondering how you're going to do that. You immediately see on that same call a team member that needs to be coached for the third time on how they're presenting something. And you're saying, how am I going to do that without derailing them? And off to the side, you get a text from a child, right? Then you're not sure if they're just grumping about something or it's something really serious and you're worrying about that in the back of your mind for three hours until you see them later on. So none of these things are insurmountable, right? Especially for successful people. We're just taught, right? You just get through this stuff, you know, to the end of the day. But the problem is we're getting hit with 20, 25, 30 of them. And what happens is our brains don't register it. We don't go into fight or flight mode, but our bodies are absorbing it. And so we end the day as exhausted. We can't quite put a finger on what just happened. And it's it's killing us. You know, literally, it's having an effect on us physically in pretty profound ways. So that's really the heart of the book, right? Is, is where are these things hitting us? How do you see them recognizing, do something about it? And then what was really fascinating to me were 90% of the interviews, they would just spiral down slowly. You know, they would start, it was all rainbows and lollipops, and then it would go down and down and down in terms of how hard life was. About 10% of them never did, right? And so we really focused the second half of that book. What are these people doing? How are they through connections in their lives, professional and personal, how are they living in ways that kind of enable them to thrive? Without giving away too much of the later half of the book, like what are some of the ways that people can cope with micro stresses to uh, alleviate these sort of things? Yeah. So, and, you know, and and I would definitely urge people to download that app. It's free, right. For everybody. And it kind of has people go through the 14 of these. I've done videos on each of them, generates a report for you. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to just partition stuff into the books. I really think this is a big deal. Like you, you, you cannot imagine going through 600 interviews like this for 90 minutes and you're in conversations with people that you only have with four or five people in your lives. You know what I mean? So it it touches your soul (laughs) by the time you're done, you know, something like that. But what I see tactically, you know, to to hit your point, Scott, is the, like, for example, there's a a midpoint in the book where we list out, you know, here are all the 14 micro stresses that people are, are, you know, conventionally experiencing. They're coming from different places. And then across the top, we're saying, you know, where, where are they coming from? Is it your boss, colleagues, team members, loved ones, et cetera, right? And so you can use this grid to see three ideas. I walk people through three ideas sequentially. One is where are two or three of these systemic enough in your life that you need to do something about it, right? You should be shifting the interaction, increasing time, whatever it is that you need to do. And there's a lot of tactics on that. But, but you know, what often happens is people will say, well, I see 20 of them. And you're like, no, no, no. if it's everything, it's nothing. Just get two or three. And the impact of that is actually way more significant than we think, right? We know the negative connections 
have more than three to five times impact on us than the positive do, right? And so, but, but people don't think about shifting the negatives that much. You know, we're quick to jump to mindfulness or other things like that, but we can actually do things that adapt to that. And that's pretty powerful. Yeah. So first pass is that. Second pass is to go through and say, okay, now tell me two or three that you're causing others unnecessarily. You know, that always shocks the leaders and they're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, what am I doing? And, and but the reality is generally speaking, the stress that we unnecessarily cause others, leaning on an employee too hard or a child, right? Too hard for something. It comes back on us in different forms, right? That employee checks out, your child becomes belligerent. You know, it just boomerangs back in different ways. So the less you're causing, the less we, we tend to experience. And then the third pass through it is, okay, where have you allowed the minutiae to take over, right? You're just into something in the weeds and you just should back away. It doesn't matter, you know, at the end of the day. Uh, and that was really the big, big trick of our, our 10 percenters is they invested in life in certain ways that rose them above the minutiae at the heart of it. And the people that didn't do that, you know, where life became completely about the profession and direct family, oftentimes those stories didn't end well you know, because kind of everything rose or fell right. on just those, those two domains. Well, I want to ask a methodological question just because we have a really geeky audience. Uh-oh, um, I'm in trouble. <laughs> so, so you did 600 interviews. That's a, that's an insane number of interviews. It's Is a lot. there anything yeah. that you learned I got I to gotta tell you, 600 doesn't even begin to scratch the surface because what do you think is the first call that's canceled five minutes before it's about to happen, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's the 90-minute oh, yeah. call with Flaky Academic, right? And so the number of <laughs> dental emergencies and dead-ons, I mean, dead-ons happen right and left in this thing, a statistical anomaly. <laughs> so you had to be persistent over time. So I had a team, obviously, working with me to, to set them up and, and kind of get them going. So anyway, go ahead. Well, is there, is there anything that you learned from doing this that you would like to share from, mm. from a methodological standpoint on how to do effective qualitative analysis as a researcher that, you know, either in the academic sphere or even if you were a practitioner? And you, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you're not going to encourage people to do 600 interviews as a practitioner, but you, you get my point. It's like, is there yeah. anything that you learned that you'd like to share with the field? Yeah, well, so I would have, I wish the big regret I have is I didn't start this much earlier. So I started doing a couple hundred interviews a year about five or six years ago. It started with that last book, Beyond Collaboration Overload. And you just get to an entirely different level of understanding. It is at the heart of it, it is so easy to spend numbers you know, in isolation. And I'm not saying that people aren't smart and you find, you know, causal links and things like that. But without the context and the richness of the stories that go along with this, I've never been more effective than I am today with audiences, because I'm not just saying this thing matters and then it's an abstract idea, right? An abstract relationship. I'm like, let me tell you a story about somebody, right? And, and inevitably, if you do 600 interviews or whatever number you pick, you're going to get to central tendency issues that people go, oh my gosh, that's me, right? And so for me, and what I value in things is having impact, right? And seeing effect and seeing the ideas take hold that I wish I'd done that a long, long time ago. And I didn't because everybody values the quantitative, right? Over the qualitative, it's just richer, it's pure, it's true, it's whatever, <laughs> but there's a value. And obviously a value in both, right? I use the quantitative analytics to find the, the people I interviewed, right? And so there's, a, there's two different things going on there. They, they, they inform each other, like in the way Cole and I interact, like I, I my own way of eliminating micro stress is uh, I don't 
pay much attention to my personal email, which I think drives Cole nuts. So like, <laughs> yeah. there's like a spillover effect of me trying to manage myself, but I caused this issue in Cole. Yeah, I, I managed my email and Scott's email on occasion. <laughs> That's called secondhand stress, right? That's literally one of them. It's people that pass on <laughs> stress to others. And, uh, <laughs> There's a spillover effect in action yeah, right yeah. here. And speak of like spillover effect, like the Connected Com has been great to get people up and running with network analysis. What what kind of advice would you give to leaders or anybody at a company that wants to? dip their toe into network analysis, but maybe mm. they've never started. Maybe they don't have resources. How, how yeah. can they, how can you go in? Yeah. And I, I would, you know, even also, I'll, I'll give you my answer. I'd love to hear what you all think, you know, about sure. this, especially, sure. you know, Scott, I know you've had effect in a bunch of different places and also, especially on the passive side, like how, how you kind of see that as well. But for me, you know, I'm on a lot of these calls each day where people are trying to get the ideas into their organization. I think there's a, a, a couple of things that you're always looking for. One is don't just try it out, right? Always have something you're trying to accomplish. Too many people would just say, oh, the diagrams look cool. The analytics look cool. I'm sure we'll find something. And those are those are projects I've learned to run from or reshape quickly. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you always want a project where you have a presenting North Star, and that can be revenue production, efficiencies, cultural change, whatever it is, right? But some presenting North Star that this is going to help you with. And then what I say do is then find five or six other things going on in that organization, maybe issues around diversity, equity, inclusion, or onboarding or things like that, where these ideas can have a material impact on the success of those projects too, right? And then design the effort that way, and you find you get really good impact, right? You hit the North Star issue very clearly, but then you're feeding the data into other programs of work and the effect is really significant. So it's always that, you know, be very clear on, on what you're trying to accomplish and then feed it into other things. You know, pick a group that is going to have impact in the organization. So a lot of times people will say, we're going to run a pilot and we're going to try to hide it in the mail room, you know, or something like that. Right. They make it back with great results, but nobody cares. And, and so it doesn't, you know, go anywhere. So pick a progressive leader, you know, someplace that people know and, and care about. And then I guess the third for me would be really leverage the individual level results that network analytics can, can provide. So what's interesting about network analysis, unlike you know, typical culture surveys or things, is there is an innate value for each individual in getting that feedback on themselves. Not to see, you know, is, is Scott coming to me for information or anything like that that's proprietary, but to understand that, okay, my network's a little more insular than my peer group. Right. And here's some things I should be thinking about or I'm seen as an energizer, you know, a little bit more than others. And here's some things I can share those kinds of feedback. It, it starts ground level change in the way you want it, but it also just gets everybody engaged in the consumption of the analytics, taking action in, in different ways. So those are a couple couple high level <laughs> thoughts. But No, no, I, I think that's absolutely apt. And like I, the way you describe it, I think you'd apply to any sort of people analytics function. Like it's it's not about just getting the data and doing something with it. It's like you have a problem that you're trying to solve and like some sort of like decision you're trying to make. One of the more defeating things I hear every so often from folks, the layman, is it say like network analysis is great. You know, you make these pretty graphs, but you can't do anything with it. It's like, well, well you can't do... Nuts. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, you're making these great things, and they are very compelling and cool and this sort of stuff. But you can't necessarily do anything with raw engagement data either. It's just data. It's what you want right. to do with it. And if folks want to get involved, it could be anything from starting very small, like push pins on a map. But you know, like the like the crazy mm-hmm. guy in the warehouse, you know, like making like a little map of a murder mystery or something like that. But just like writing down your network, seeing where your gaps are, this sort of thing, depending on the question you're trying to ask. Passive data is always going to be a question with increasing privacy concerns and this sort of thing. Yeah. I'm curious, uh, like, what do you see there? What do you see as some of the bigger applications? And that drives me nuts as well. The whole, it's not actionable because we have tons of examples of where the, the issue is not that it's not actionable. It's that people... Too often, the analytics are presented as a as a stream of analytics, <laughs> and if you don't say, "Here's the insight. Here's what you can do about it," yeah, and pause, and then here's the insight, and here's what you can do about it, and pause for discussion. You that's when you tend to get that reaction a lot back, at least in my experience. <laughs> and um, I, I admit I, I'm guilty of this too. Like you come across like a really cool like ERGM, and like you you want to display the result and talk about the analysis, this sort of thing. That's not the key that people care about. It's what you can actually do with this information moving forward. Yeah, when I think about this, you know, there's there's network analysis that's descriptive and diagnostic. And I think that's where a lot of people get stuck, where they're saying, oh, this is interesting. I, I love mm-hmm. this. This is is thoughtful and yeah. thought-provoking. And But it, you have to make that bridge into prescriptive. Like, what are we going to do about this? And, right. and going kind of back to your question, Rob, about, passive, passive ONA, I always think about is to whom is this benefiting, right? Mm. If this Mm. is just insight that is going to go to like executives and they're going to see people's names on charts based (laughs) on, you know, people's email and calendar usage or whatever kind of passive ONA data that's being sourced, that's pretty creepy and probably not in the employee's (laughs) best interest. What if you're giving that data to the employees themselves and saying, kind of to the point you were making earlier, Rob, is saying like, hey, Compared to the rest of your network, maybe you could be doing this a little bit better and kind of giving it more like a Fitbit of like saying, hey, you didn't really get really good sleep last night. Maybe tomorrow night you get a little bit better sleep, that kind of thing. I, I think I think that there's definitely some applications that are quite employee friendly in the passive O&A space as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, one example of that for me that I'm seeing a good bit of traction on is we did a lot of work in one of the programs and understanding, you know, oftentimes what we'll see in strong culture companies is people come in and it takes them, you know, three to five years to replicate the connectivity of a high performer. So, I mean, they're not talking to anybody. It means they haven't built the same set of bridging ties, trust, reputational capital. Sometimes it goes as high as five or more years that we see in super strong culture places. But we we also discovered these people that were doing it not in three to five years, but in nine to 12 months. Right. And so we honed in really heavily on them in a big program of work that was assessing, you know, what are you doing practice wise? Right. What's happening, you know, day one, day three, you know, it's not 90 days that predicts their success. It's typically nine months and a set of actions that need to happen. So to your point, like that's one place we're getting great success is, you know, having people come in, run the passive analytics behind the scenes, and then they're getting these nudges. Both they and their people leader are getting the nudges, not of who they're connected to, but just saying, here's what you need to think about, right? And and that tends to, to be pretty powerful in kind of conveying and getting action on the ideas without overwhelming on the, on the analytics anyway. 
Yeah, an organization by nature is interdependent. Is talking people talking to each other to get something done, and therefore any application that deals with people talking to one another will be ONA relevant in some capacity. So you're talking about culture, right. inclusion, onboarding, any of this sort of thing. But I, I think the bigger question, Rob, is like, are there Waffle Houses in Boston? I don't know. Now, that's a really good question. I don't <laughs> think there are. There's a heck of a lot of Dunkin' Donuts, but I'm actually sitting in Charlottesville, Virginia now, and I know they're here. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Rob, you're entering our simultaneously most favorite and least favorite <laughs> segment that we have, the Waffle House. <laughs> So this this is a, like is a toggle is a waffle on some sort of topic and the question is say like someone were to like a wizard were to come down and present a binder full of everything that anyone has ever said about you with all the context so we're talking like coworkers or partners people on the street all that information is in this binder and you can read it but once you start reading it you can't stop you have to read everything. <laughs> Do you read it or do you not read it? Oh, I totally would read it. Yeah, I I tell my students this all the time. People are going to think it no matter what. You may as well hear it, (laughs) right? And some of it you've got to have thick skin and roll your eyes on. But oftentimes on the margin, there's small things you can do, right? And I, you know, I, I am in the weird position of, for example, with this new book, the publisher, you know, asked me to write two emails to my network of, you know, off LinkedIn, for example, there's like yeah. you know, a bunch of people. And so it's kind of like that, right? Like you're getting reactions back from people. And, and it's <laughs> stunningly, it's amazing to me. There's two things that are amazing. One is all the positiveness that comes out of the woodwork, especially from 10, 15 years ago, like students that you haven't seen or thought of. And they're like, oh my gosh, do you remember me? And this and that. And just, I can't believe how the work is unfolded and, and all that. Right. But what is interesting is you get, I think I got like 800, 900 emails back. So it was a volume. It was crazy. And, but I got five unsubscribe me <laughs> emails. <laughs> what do you think I think about the 800 or the five? Oh, yes. <laughs> They weren't even nasty emails. <laughs> so. I think that that's a good point. Like if you're a good person, they probably say a lot of really positive things about you to be really enforcing, reinforcing, right? Hmm. But if you're not yeah. so much, maybe you got things to worry about. I don't I don't think that I would even I'm, I'm from the South. I I, I can tell <laughs> people like me or not. I don't need to know. Cole, Cole, what do you think? Yeah, I was I was just thinking about it really practically. I feel like if you had to read it to the end, you'd be reading for the rest of your life. And I was like, I don't want to read people's feedback of me for the rest of my life. So I would just skip it. I would love to read it in short snippets, but that's not very Waffle Housey. That's what I thought. That's what the wizard did for you was kind of help you yeah. digest it quickly. <laughs> Maybe some like Neuralink just goes straight to your brain. You would join us in the nerdery now. You talk some nerd articles. Yeah, I don't know these, so you guys are gonna have to kind of talk me through a little bit. What you uh, no, no, no worries, no worries. We, um, we don't know them either, usually. Good. So you're in good. About them. <laughs> <laughs> That's sound confident. It's, yeah, <laughs> it is just an excuse to have tangents and go off track. Definitely, just have good conversation. But this one's called One City Two Tales, uh, where they use mobile phone data to examine New York City's response to COVID lockdowns. And I think the exciting part is, you know, I think we did it. We finally flattened the curve before Easter. That's good news, right? <laughs> yeah. Finally. A couple of years late. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so they, they took all this cell phone data and they aggregated it by network. So each network was a node 
and they calculated weekly network centrality metrics. So between this degree centrality and this like a one, they calculate themselves a within ratio. So how many people are the, the ratio of visiting points of interest, such as grocery stores within a neighborhood. And they measured the change from 2019 to 2021. And they found that high income areas such as Manhattan, they had a huge decline in mobility. So these people could work from home. You got the financial district, which essentially shut mm -hmm. down. Makes sense. They didn't go out. But low income and low education areas had high betweenness. So the, these areas had high proportions of frontline workers that had to travel outside mm -hmm. the house mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and had to go to work. They had to travel to other boroughs. But Staten Island is a bit different. It's a high income, high education area, but it has limited resources. So not a whole lot of grocery stores and this sort of thing. So people still had to go outside their area. And the the overall, I guess, takeaway here is like if if there's a, another pandemic, you need to put more resources or amenities within mm. organizations, organizations, within neighborhoods to make sure that they don't travel outside these different areas. Like really interesting and fascinating use of mobile phone data. Yeah, that is interesting to see kind of what could become a, a spreader in different ways. One of the interesting ones I remember seeing was, I think it was from Singapore. I can't remember who, where it exactly, but they were showing the infection rate, you know, as a product, they were using phone data there and they were showing yeah. people in the same restaurant that just happened to be sitting where the air conditioning was blowing, <laughs> that they were the oh, ones wow. that were, were getting it. And they could actually pick that up as a product of the of the phone data, literally that level of granularity. So it, it does suggest, you know, of course, within limits of privacy and protecting, you know, that, that there's an enormous amount that could be done, you know, as you're saying, like keep the, the spread from happening by bringing the resources in a different way is interesting too. See, my, my mind immediately went to, I wonder if there's a correlation between hidden influencers and organization and super spreaders of COVID. You know, mm -hmm. are those the same people? Because you would think, you know, logically, if these are people that are interacting more often with a wider network of people, they're probably all also more likely to be a COVID super spreader. But I don't know. What, what do you think about that, Scott? Chris Takis has like a really interesting talk about this. So if you're an organization, you don't necessarily have the means to identify influence on the organization. You can rely on some network analysis principles, such as your friends mathematically have more friends than you do. It's called the friendship paradox. Mm -hmm. So if you get these random people or sampled with an organization and you say like, nominate a friend, they're more likely to nominate an influencer in the organization. And then you can use those people as sensors within the organization. So if information is coming to them first, it's going to spread throughout the organization. So they, they can be like an early warning signal to other things that are going to happen across the organization. Like yeah. censoring what kind of stuff? Oh, I mean, it, it could be anything from like cultural influences that are coming through or like, have you heard a bit of information? It, it could be people that are getting sick, like quite literally. Anything coming down the pipe, anything that's transmitted socially. Yeah, we've done that. So, I mean, that was actually one of the more influential studies in general, as I looked at this idea of well-being, you know, yeah. they were finding that, you know, if you're hanging out with a, a happy person, you're like 15% more likely to be happy. If you're hanging out with a lonely person, you're 52% more likely to be lonely, you know, so it's, again, it's that that magnification of the negative over the positive and how it moves through networks. And I've seen that for decades. Like if we look at de-energizers or kind of negative dimensions in relationships, they always have, you know, more than twice the impact. But, you know, real, real specific use of that is 
the military will use badge devices to see on ships, for example, where interactions have been happening. They've been playing with different devices like this because they oftentimes have very high-end roles, right? And only a couple of people yeah. can fill those roles. So if flu breaks out like COVID or other forms of flu, and it takes down a couple of people, it can affect readiness, like military readiness, you know, at that point. And so that's a purely pragmatic way, right? That that you can see the the spread, right? Of something like that early and do something about it. That's really wild, especially like in a captive environment, like they took right. like a Navy ship or something. That's like what that, you need, like oil, oil rigs, Navy ships, call centers, <laughs> things where people aren't, you know, going anywhere. Call centers, they obviously are, but they're more contained than than more modern contemporary organizations. Well, like another area that I, I see is like underserved, both in people analytics and network analysis right now is like this idea of teams or like how teams interact and like what makes a great team. I think we're still trying to figure this out. Mm, completely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean that's my next book. Oh, <laughs> well, there you go. Stress effect is it's just under just Breaking going under news. contract now. Where <laughs> we we took the same idea and we're focused not on what predicts high performers, but looking at teams, right? And I, you know, to your point, I think the conventional idea of a team is outdated. You know, people don't have they're on six, seven, eight teams. Many of these things that organizations are calling teams are growing into the 60s, 120s. I mean, I know Amazon has a tendency to keep it small, but a lot of places, life sciences, other places, they grow big. And so what we really focused in on was saying, let's look at the performance of these groups, not as a product of vision, mission, purpose, but as a product of a network that needs to form internally and externally, right? In certain ways. And you do that across a ton of organizations and we have really clear pictures of the predictors of, of team success. But then the real thing that's grabbed people's attention is when the teams fail, they tend to exhibit certain archetypes. And so that's gotten, it's always interesting to me how people love to know what positive looks like. You know, they want to know, oh, I should go do this. But if you can say, watch out for this, don't do this. That's when they're like, oh my gosh. So the avoidance <laughs> of the negative is always a good lead and in, in, in this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I actually did some work using network analysis on comparing high versus low performing teams a few years ago. And it's striking how if you look at these teams, and I'm not talking about like a team of like five people, I'm talking about teams of like 50 people. Yeah. It's striking how you can just look yeah, at a good. network. Like I could I could have my three-year-old look at the network and say which was the high performing and which was the low performing team just by eyeballing it. It was it was quite impressive. I find like these archetypes that we have, you know, there's six of them that have come out. And I just, I'll put them up on a slide in front of a group. And especially as I was doing a ton of interviews there to see what are the leaders doing, right? If they, if their groups are drifting into trouble, how did they get out of it? What did they do? Uh, But the resonance was immediate, like nothing I've ever seen with this stuff. It's like, oh, I've seen three of those last week, you know? (laughs) So to your point, there's something about that being the right level of analysis. Sometimes these ideas can get so comprehensive that it takes people a long time to absorb, but there's something about the team level that seems to kind of grab people quickly. And like, like the 50 people on a team that there, there cannot be interdependence at that point. Like there's just too many yeah. people to keep working. And our idea of a team is somewhat, Oh, I, I don't know. Like I, I probably belong on eight different teams, you know, like in any one given time. So like, what is a team? It's really hard to define in itself. It's it's probably the most difficult unit of analysis when trying to do this. Yeah. Like, what is a team? 
you know, if you can't agree on what that is, or if like, <laughs> you know, two people or you, you ask one and say, Hey, are you on a team with Scott? And they ask the other person, like, I'm not on a team with Scott. It's like, well, who's on a team and who isn't? I don't even know. I mean, that was the most common question I got when I was doing the interviews for this work is, well, what do you mean by team? <laughs> I kid you not. <laughs> Everybody was, you know, there on that oh, yeah. question. And we're seeing, you know, when we actually run the analytics through our softwares in the consortia, that's gotten to be one of the most common questions we always include is how many teams are you on? And we find that, you know, you pass certain numbers and fragmentation happens in the in the overall network, right? And, and not good ways. Overload happens on those people that are on too many teams. There's a lot of kind of inefficiencies that you start to see because of what you're saying. Right? People are just thrown on six, seven, eight teams today. Like it's not a like it's a free resource, you know, we just throw teams and stuff. <laughs> well, I, I want to continue on kind of the, the COVID theme from the, the one city, two tails and, and go towards, and I'm sharing my screen here for some data that the Stanford economics professor, Nick Bloom has shared about polling people since COVID on, I think it's every two or three months. And this data was based on California employers. So it's not representative of the whole world, but it's still a pretty good data set to say, how long or when do you think the long-term normal will be returned to your organization from COVID? And one of the, the reason why I brought this up and, and folks who are on the video can see this if they're interested, but I'll just kind of verbally explain it. You know, when we started this podcast, Scott and I were talking a lot about what is the new normal going to be and what is the research saying about, you know, is it in-person, is it remote, is it hybrid? And you can actually see that manifest on the chart because we started talking about this right around March of 2022. And at that time, at least in California, it said that 35% of organizations felt like they were at their new normal. So there was obviously some churn going on of like or discussion of like, how are we going to address this topic? But if you fast forward to March of 2023, and this kind of correlates to the amount we talk about it now, about 73% of organizations feel like that they're they're at their new normal. So a pretty significant majority are saying, "Hey, we we figured out what we're going to figure out and and this is what our new normal is going to be." I was I'm curious, what are were your what are your all reactions to this data? I'll I'll, I'll jump in here. Like my my initial thought is like I because all this data has come from California. I I think we may be actually be seeing like an echo chamber effect where there are probably a lot of Silicon Valley sort of related organizations, a lot of organizations that are remote. And California was one of the staunchest COVID states, right? That they're most restrictive, sending people home and this sort of thing. So I, I, I would gather that perceptions are skewed in this sample. What well, doesn't say, see, I, I would actually not, not to just take the other side of the argument, but I think you kind of control for that fact, because even if you have more staunch restrictions, that still doesn't mean that, you know, maybe you're not going to a remote permanent new normal of what your work is going to be permanently. Right. And so it's not necessarily saying that the new normal is going back to the office five days a week in person. It's just saying we have come to consensus at our organization of what our new normal will be. Wait, okay, so like I, I maybe I don't understand now. Are it's saying like we we are approaching whatever normal is? Yeah. Like our organ like we're coming it, closer at and one closer point, to normal. Organizations were having a lot of debate about what the future of their workplace was going to be. 
you know, and many of those organizations have now settled that debate. So if you like, let's take, for example, you rewind to May of 2021, pretty early, let's be honest, 4% of companies said that they had figured out what their long-term new normal was, but now it's 73%. That's a huge change in that amount of time. And I think that means that some of this debate that has happened around this topic, whether it be in California or anywhere else and you know, lenient area, strict area, doesn't really matter. They've kind of come to consensus on what their long-term new normal is going to be for their organization. Apologies. I I misread this as we are going to be working from home (laughs) forever. It just means like we we are essentially each reaching the end of the pandemic is another way to look at it. We are, it says we are already operating under our new normal is that's what 73% of folks in this California sample are saying. Yeah, I mean, okay, like with that clarification, like, good, good. We need some stability. Yeah, <laughs> I think we, we, we've been through <laughs> some rough times and I think we're ready for normal, whatever normal is. Yeah, I mean, that's my reaction is I think how people are implementing it is very different. You know, we have a lot of organizations in the consortia are using the network analytics. Part of the problem is a lot of times it's a policy driven thing of, two days a week, three days a week, some just number that usually people have been looking around saying, what are other people doing? Mm -hmm. This is again, one of the strengths with the network analysis is the last thing you want is to have people come in two days a week, but not come in at the same time that the other people that are either going to energize them or be central to their work. And so that's a really neat use of network analytics in those situations or in, in high, high cost real estate infrastructure, things like that, where you say, how do we go in and see the right constellation of groups that need to work together? Because people don't think about that, right? They think about their function, their teams. They don't think about the cross connectivity, the bridging ties, Scott, in your terms, that needs to happen that's delivering, you know, either client excellence, efficiencies, things like that. So that can be a totally different way of thinking about space allocation and also kind of temporally, you know, bringing the right constellation of groups back in, in different ways. And we've seen some pretty neat results from that in terms of people accepting it too. You know what I mean? Being, being willing to. So Rob, are you saying that if I go in Monday and Friday and the rest of my team goes in (laughs) Tuesday and Thursday, that has a detrimental effect to the team? Just a little What bit. are you saying? <laughs> and, and especially, right? I mean, that's one of the challenges. We would marry the analytics, and this is through the pandemic, as people were thinking about future work. And we would say, how often do you want to come back? You know, one day, two day, three day, four day, five day as needed. And one of the most constant themes were the people that were most heavily sought out were by far the largest group saying only as needed. You know, I don't want to come back in some one, two, three year approach, right? And so you're in this conundrum, like, let's say you force people back two days a week, you happen to be one of those big connectors, you come back Monday, and Friday, you don't see the people you need to works with your personal life, but suddenly you're irritated and you leave, right? And and so the attrition rates that were happening as people tried to force these models and were happening to their most connected people right? The ones that had figured out there's a different way to live my life <laughs> and I'm going to manage a little bit differently. So it, it's it's not just the policy, but it's like, how do you implement it through the influencers? How do you get them engaged and then bring them along and have them be the ones to design, not just two days a week, but what are we going to do with that time? That was the other really big thing we could see is that what people were saying they wanted the face-to-face or synchronous for when we ran all this in analytics was, I want to have interactions that create energy and purpose for me, interactions that generate growth and learning, 
and interactions that generate innovation and problem solving. Those are the three things that mm -hmm. really require synchrony and face-to-face. And, -face. and the other stuff could drift, right, into different vehicles. But the problem was, as leaders are coming back, they're just happy to see people. So they start running their same meetings again, right? And they're going to go through project plans and they're going to go through this and that versus saying, how do I recreate this context and this face-to-face -face time that may be gold now to generate energy and purpose, growth and learning and innovation and problem solving. It's just a very different way of thinking about it. That's, that's a challenge. This is what I love about Michael Arena's adaptive hybrid approach, where it balances the needs of the employees with that in the organization. You're actually optimizing for innovation, very forward way of thinking about it, as opposed to you come in two days a week. I come in on Tuesdays, Cole comes in on Thursdays. But you get these added benefits that we don't really talk about that much. The the wellness factors, such as being right. embedded in the organization or recovery factors. But we'll, we'll move on to our final article here about rice farmers, where actually interaction could have a detrimental effect. Yeah, is rice farming one of your hobbies, Rob? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How did you pick that out so, so casually? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, this survey data shows that rice farmers are less happy than wheat farmers in Asian countries. And it's like, why? Why would this be the case? Well, there's more interdependence in the rice farmers, which leads to greater social comparison, especially those who are the worst off. The predictors of happiness in the study, anyway, include income, social status, and occupational status. And these effects tend to be twice as strong in the rice farmers and the wheat farmers they ran an additional study and essentially found that those people that engage in greater social comparison tended to be less happy. And they say that this could explain, at least partly, why interdependent Eastern Asian cultures tend to be less happy than Western counterparts with similar SES, mm -hmm. et cetera. I, I just have a clarifying question. When they're saying social comparison, do they mean like keeping up with the Joneses? Is that what they're saying? Yeah. Yeah, this like social and occupational status. So some people are okay. ahead of the curve, some people are worse off. But I mean, this sort of gets to something that you mentioned earlier, Rob, around interacting with others can have, and the micro stress can have a negative effect as well. Like we, we tend to think about the positive aspects, but mm -hmm. any, anything can be passed with a network. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, you know, as, as part of this book, I focused, there's a lot of studies recently that have been showing that the quality of our connections have been declining. This is before COVID, right? Just the, in general, the quality, if you think about authenticity, intimacy, you know, yeah. friendships, right? Things like that, that's been declining. And the effect is really significant. You know, Vivek Murthy's book cited a ton of studies and I read every single one of those. And then I went out and found studies they were citing. And it's just crazy. You know, the effect of if you become clinically lonely, then that has the mortality rate that's equivalent to 15 cigarettes a day. It's a 26% greater likelihood of early death, you know, blood pressure issues, dementia, you know, all sorts of things, right? And so what's stunning to me is that we don't take it more seriously, right? Because we'll chase blood pressure medicines down or <laughs> cholesterol or whatever. But yeah, we have this, this stuff that's kind of either avoiding the negative or, or ensuring the positive is there in our connective life. And we don't pay attention to it. I think in large part because we don't measure it, right? What gets measured gets paid attention to and we don't, we don't see it. But what I, was, what I was thinking about when you said that is the studies on loneliness, it's not just the number of connections, right? It's a perceptual feeling, right? Do I feel lonely? Yes. And they show that that the millennials, Gen Z millennials 
are the loneliest generation, right? They're the most connected and yet simultaneously the loneliest. And yeah, I've, I've heard so about this. There's like a loneliness epidemic going on in at least, and, and I'm just talking at a turn here, being directionally correct, let's call it. But I've heard it, it came with the onset of the smartphone. Yeah, people feel like that they yeah. you know used to go out to like a bar and or whatever, like a group event and have happy hour, or get together with friends. And now they are messaging online or texting or doing TikTok or whatever kids do these days. And, and that's taking the place of the hours that they would have spent with other human beings. Yeah. And I think that's a little bit of, I, I, you know, where I was, I was thinking about with this is that the, it affects the quality of the connection. But what mm-hmm. Scott, you spurred with me with the rice farmers is there are these kids and there's so much in my mind more, I hate to use the word fragile, but things that, that upset them or have them going. I mean, I, we've seen a 30% rise across all college campuses this year alone on people seeking counseling help, right? And so you hear the anxiety mm-hmm. in this population is huge. And I think one is the coping mechanism of quality of connections and increased isolation, even though you may be wildly connected on Facebook. But then I also wonder like that social comparison thing with the rice farmers, like how much of that is going on and people are just looking at Instagram, Facebook, all this stuff that's a portrayal of not a reality, but of an ideal, you know what I mean? And they're thinking, why am I not there, you know, as well. There's obviously a huge number of upsides, right, to how connected we are, but there's a lot of potential negative too, to, to be managed in it. Absolutely. And the Fowler and Christakis talk about this in their book, Connected, that loneliness is really about the connections that you wish you had. So you may talk to your mom or like a low value friend, but you want to be friends with the jock of the football team or, you know, like the popular person or whatever. And if you don't have those connections, then it might as well not even occur. But like you, you touched on something there, Rob, as well, like that you wrote about in the HBR article on micro stresses. It, this is why I think that your 20s are they, they kind of suck because like it's not only is it like a really turbulent time, but your friends are really flaky and like you mm-hmm. can't trust them. And like mm-hmm. everyone's sort of competing for resources and like you get thrown to the bus more regularly than you do later in your career. Perhaps it's like some sort of like testosterone issue there as well. but. <laughs> Like all these sort of things just happen, these like stresses get compiled on top of you. And especially looking at Instagram or, you know, TikTok and you see your friends and they're driving like a fancy car and you don't have it. And it's, right. it's just, right. it stinks. Yeah, it spirals. It's, it's fascinating to hear you say that because I, I just got off a, a call earlier today for a big leadership program. I'm going to do very well-known top regarded organization, their top 300 leaders. And what they were saying is that that group is in this, you've heard of the sandwich generation, right? When you're, you're taking care of kids and parents. Oh, yeah. And part of the problem is this 20s thing that you're talking about is way worse on the parents now too, right? The kids don't leave anymore. <laughs> They're constantly <laughs> coming back. I mean, and you think about it, you know, like, you know, I remember when I went to college and granted we were using chalkboards and there wasn't air and all that <laughs> stuff way back then, but you called your parents once a week on a payphone, right? In the dorm. <laughs> now it's like any issue that you want, you know, a circuit circling back. So it's fascinating because it is the twenties. The twenties are different now and, and it is having impact upstream too. You know, one of their biggest pressing issues was these kind of high mid-level leaders are getting crushed, not just from us at work, but from, you know, an excessive number of things outside too. So it's fascinating. 
Well, this ruins my weekend plans of taking up rice farming with my neighbors. I just, <laughs> I don't want to get a, get in a fight with them because of all the social comparisons that might happen. Well, I, I think we've officially exhausted the rice farming talk. Rob, you, you've been an amazing guest today. I've, I've been wanting to meet you and talk to you for a long time. So I'm really glad that you got involved with us today. Before I give you the final word, Scott, any parting notes to Rob? Rob, I always love talking to you. Networks, life, what have you. How, how can folks get in contact with you? They want to reach out. So, well, first of all, let me say thank you guys. Yeah, I appreciate the engagement of what you guys are doing in general. And the way you're doing is really neat to, to hear and be a part of. So thank you. Just, you know, obviously I'm always interested in advancing the research. So I encourage people if they get into the micro stress ideas, the way we evolve research at this stage is to get the principles down and then get the practices and then build the tools that companies can use and then see if we can drive impact, right? Economic impact or things. So obviously reaching out to me or if you're just interested in more information, my website is robcross.org and it has a ton of, you know, things and other resources around the, the books and everything there. So so yeah, that's that's it. And I'll say thank you guys again. Well, thanks for joining us, Rob. And thanks for being a great godfather to Scott. You were very appreciative of your efforts, but the pressure is you've been so listening. Yeah. <laughs> you've been listening to Direction Correct, the People Analytics Podcast with Colin Scott and Rob Cross. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Thank you. As always, all opinions are owned and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, the People Analytics Podcast with Colin Scott. Thank you.